This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew. It's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. You can learn the science behind great marketing with bite-sized 20-minute episodes packed with practical advice from world-class marketers and behavioral scientists. And it's not always about marketing. Great episode recently, you learned the surprising truths about and tips for beating stress and anxiety. Sounds like a great program, doesn't it? Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jance. My guest today is Matt Higgins. He's a self-made entrepreneur who went from poverty to the top of five industries and now serves as a guest shark on ABC's hit series Shark Tank. He'll soon star in a new spinoff, Business Hunters, also executive produced by Mark Burnett. He's the author of a new book called Burn the Boats. Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential. So, Matt, welcome to the show. All right. Thank you for having me. Like many entrepreneurs, you have a long and winding journey. If somebody were to wade into, you know, how you got here, I wonder if you have the five-minute version of kind of like what's been your entrepreneurial journey. You obviously are at a, you know, a lot of times people will look at somebody and go, oh, he's on Shark Tank. He's, you know, made it, you know, but they a lot of times look back or don't look back <laughs> at like, the stuff you had to crawl over to get there. No, I appreciate you saying that. Well, winding is one way to put it. Some would say incoherent, but you know, we can <laughs> sort of explain the genesis of everything. But I don't want to begin with what you just said, because I love it. A lot of the reasons why I wrote this book was I don't want to be perceived as the guy at the end of the journey on Shark Tank. That's just right. a manifestation of it. I think more useful to look at my life, where I came from, hopefully to model what overcoming those circumstances looks like. I spent my whole life engineering my way out of bad situations. Some I was born into, others I put myself into, like everybody else listening. But, but my journey starts with the one I was born into. I grew up in Queens, New York, the product of a single mom. And these words, abject poverty, take on almost like a cliche meaning. So just to make it sound, what does that really mean? Growing up with basically wondering where the next meal was coming from, grew up on government cheese, little blocks of cheese from the USDA and food pantries. So just a lot of instability and fragility in my upbringing. And my mother had a lot of disabilities that were compounding mm -hmm. over time. She, is a high, she was a high school dropout, but really fiercely intelligent. And these, all my worlds were colliding as a kid where food was an issue. I was selling flowers on street corners and I was watching my mother deteriorate. And you go through so many disappointments in life where you hope the cavalry is going to come. And I learned, fortunately, for better or worse, at a very young age that the cavalry never comes. And so I was getting increasingly desperate. And around 13, 14, I, I had an epiphany wait a second, my mother got a GD and she was able to go to college with a GD. I was like, I was looking at the Penny Saver, our little local newspaper in Queens, and there was a job offer for a kid to deliver flyers, but it said college students only. I was like, what's this special thing called college student? What if I could drop out of high school at 16 and get that $9 an hour paying job instead of making three seventy-five at McDonald's? Could I pull forward my escape from poverty. So my entire entrepreneurial journey begins with me architecting my way and why that origin story is so important because it really put me through everything an entrepreneur has to go through. One, my guidance counselor said, you're absolutely crazy. The stigma of you being a high school dropout will follow you forever. This is before little Mark Zuckerberg with his hoodie 
you know, I made it cool. Before it was trendy, that. right. Okay. Yeah, before it's trendy, <laughs> things, right? So that was number one. So I have the conventional wisdom of the world and the question of, well, you're not going to know enough to go to college. I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily true. And the fact that no one had ever done, not no one, people hadn't done it deliberately, certainly, actually dropped out of high school. And as four, a plan, right? As a plan, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then the last piece is really important is that I realized I had so much pressure for me to change paths. I used to sit at McDonald's all day, get picked up by the truancy police, carted back. You know, there was all these forces saying like, conform. But yet nobody had the full context of the fact that I was sleeping on a, on a dirty mattress on the floor. My mother was, would cry through the entire night in pain. I would wrap a towel around my head so I could hear through the fibers, but try to sleep. So, you know, I'm under constant duress as a kid, pretending to be affluent with my Jordache jeans that I bought, you know, with whatever money I had. So like I'm putting on a mask. My God, everyone giving me advice can't see the truth. So the advice is corrupted because it doesn't have full information created by me, you know, hiding my shame. So I had to go through that crazy decision to drop out of high school, 16. And in one chess move, I went from high school dropout, where everyone's looking at me with pity, to a year later going to my high school prom as a, finishing my first year in college on the debate team, 3-5 GPA, and a well-paying job compared to McDonald's. And I remember the look on my guidance counselor, my teachers, that it had went from one of sadness, and it's probably a degree of disdain, to one of admiration. And mm -hmm. so... Everything about my entrepreneurial journey and a lot of the incoherence of it, the way I look on paper, all these different industries can be explained from that one move. So, so remind listeners, probably most people have heard one version or another of this story, but the metaphor of burn the boats, the story behind that. Yeah. So I, I've, you know, despite my quote unquote success, I, you know, I've always tackled with the lingering effects of the story I just told you, you know, a degree yeah, of yeah. PTSD and trauma, there's <laughs> obviously more to it and anxiety and whatnot. And all those things create hesitation. And so I get so mad at myself when I know in order to succeed, I need to fully commit and I need to slay the naysayers in my head or the external forces that are trying to stand in my way. I know that intellectually, but I don't believe it. And I was like, what does it take to fully believe that in order to be successful and achieve plan A, you have to fully surrender to the goal? Why do we hesitate? And I noticed throughout my career, this phrase would keep coming up, burn the boats. And then I would look back in history like, wow, you know, Caesar said it, right? You know, it's in the art of war, right? It goes back to the ancient Israelites. This idea of that in a military context, when you're outnumbered 100 to 1, the way that you could summon unnatural resolve from your troops is to destroy their way home. In the article where they say, you know, burn the boats and, the, and destroy the cooking pots. And that obviously that makes people say, I have no choice but to win. How can I take that, that concept and appropriate it for peacetime activity? And so yeah. the word boat is a little bit different than used in a military context. My boat are all the things in your life that force you to hesitate and hold back. Yeah, and the cushy job that you got right now. The cushy job you got, but more often, as the Italians say, the fish rots from the head. The cover of my yeah. boat is a paper boat, and it's meant to be a child's boat floating in a bathtub, and it's on fire, incendiary. And the reason why I start with that metaphor is because a lot of the things that hold us back are legacy issues that we haven't synthesized. Shame. And for a number of years, the story I just told you would be something I wouldn't talk about because I wouldn't mm -hmm. want to show vulnerability. And I had cancer and a bunch of other issues I went through. So the first mandate of my book was model what it looks like to shed shame. Show people that everybody who has transcended their circumstances had to go through that journey. And then try basically articulate all the different kinds of boats that we have to burn before achieving greatness. 
and a lot it's not rocket science the rocket science comes in execution not in our not in identifying but the the themes in my book that'll be familiar to your listeners are imposter syndrome the corporate saboteurs all these are these obstacles but it's basically a treatise on hesitation and how to commit yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I work with a lot of startup owners and many of them jumping out of corporate jobs. And in some cases, you know, it took them three years or they tried to do both at the same time and found that they weren't, you know, <laughs> they were struggling with both. Yeah. So I, you know, I do think that there is a fear that stops people because, you you know, a lot of like take the leap or, you know, what other metaphors that people use. I mean, they really starting a business is, you know, a leap of faith in, in some cases. I want to go to a line that I read. I think it was in another interview you gave, but or maybe it was, was just a build up on the book. But why research proves that the mere contemplation of Plan B statistically reduces the probability Plan A will ever materialize. I think that's a, a pretty profound backing for this idea of burning the boats, isn't it? Yeah, it's, that's a great point. Well, the, well, so I put a lot of energy in the book to buttress this idea because yeah. it's at the same time, it's kind of simplistic. And there's a lot of people listening who will reflexively say, yeah, I heard that before, burn the boats, but risk, but I have mouths to feed, but I have yeah, rent yeah. to pay. Right? So number one, the idea of burn the boats doesn't mean burn the boats with you in it. And by the way, burn the boats. <laughs> that is a huge clarification. Okay. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Little caveat, asterisk. <laughs> And, and why that's important, because I am the most paranoid risk taker you're probably ever going to have on your show. Like I process risk thoroughly and I work backwards from the worst case scenario so that I can ensure that if the worst thing I can imagine would happen, would I still be OK? And the answer is always yes. What I argue and burn the boats is not eschew all risk or ignore it. It's synthesize it at the start of the journey. And by the way, here's how you do it so that you can go ahead and you could fearlessly you know, move forward. And a lot of people don't do that. Now, the science that you're talking about, there was a study out of Wharton, which I think is so fascinating. It was 2014. They decided to see if they could identify what, what is the underlying you know, consequence of anyone not actually having a plan B, but simply contemplating a plan B. And I won't get into the, how they recreated it in the yeah. study setting, but all the subjects had to do was just think about another way they could get that snack you know, in the study or whatever the stimuli was, right? And it found out that just thinking about it both eliminated the probability that they would succeed with plan A, but also killed their intrinsic motivation. So my book is meant to also be a retort to any one of you out there listening who's going, but no, we get into the butts. <laughs> Everybody who I profiled in this book, 50 different CEOs, founders, athletes, artists, NFL coaches had their butts too. The point is to process the butts and put them in their place and then move forward. And to prove to you through science, history, psychology, and otherwise, that just thinking about that plan B is truly killing your plan A. Are you an agency owner, consultant, or coach that works with business owners? Then I want to talk to you about adding a new revenue stream to your business that will completely change how you work with clients. For the first time ever, you can license and use the duct tape marketing system and methodology in your business through an upcoming three-day virtual workshop. Give us three days and you'll walk away with a complete system that changes how you think about your agency's growth. The duct tape marketing system is a turnkey set of processes for installing a marketing system that starts with strategy and moves to long-term retainer implementation engagements. We've developed this system by successfully working with thousands of businesses. Now you can bring it to your agency and benefit from all the tools, templates, systems, and processes we've developed. To find out when our next workshop is being held, visit dtm.world workshop. That's dtm.world 
dot world slash workshop. Do you think sometimes people come to the conclusion that they burned the boats in hindsight? So in other words, like they really only saw there was like, this is what I think I need to do, or this is what I was told to do. And next thing you turn around and it's like, I succeeded. And now I look back and go, oh, because I didn't have a plan B. I mean, was, is it sometimes, I guess I'm talking about luck almost, <laughs> you know, is it sometimes that is at play? Yeah, I think that's true. I do. I'm a big anti-luck person if there is such a thing, because I think a lot of times luck is sort of robs you of agency. And yeah, I think sometimes yeah. luck is a dirty forward alert that people use against you to say, well, you know, you didn't right. manifest it. So I think that the universe is fundamentally benevolent and does give you multiple opportunities to save yourself. And so a lot of times you're reconstructing, you're right, in hindsight, like yeah. the, I think it's more you're reconstructing what was the turning point. What was the yeah. moment when I finally... Yeah actually pulled it off. And usually the moment I find in dealing with so many CEOs, I'm sure you have a similar experience. The moment that actually led to the breakthrough was the moment they stopped giving an F about something that was recurring in their head. It was the moment of almost capitulation. Like, you know yeah. what? Like, I have a great story in my book, A Founder. It's one of my favorite stories in all of business. And he was a founder, an amazing guy. I bought his company. And I knew, frankly, he was going to get eaten alive by the investors that we had brought in. He just wasn't ready for prime time. And he wasn't dealing with some of the hard staff choices that he needed to upgrade the team. He was just a martyr who was taking it all upon himself. And ultimately, the walls began to crash in on him. And he calls me one night crying, saying, I failed you. I'm going to resign at the end of the year. And I heard in the background an EKG or you know the beeping machine. I said, what yeah. is that? He's like, well, I'm in the hospital. My, my little baby girl, we're testing her for seizures. We think she might be on the spectrum. I said, first of all, why are you calling me? Hang up the phone. Go Second of all, I'm the one who makes this phone call. I, when, I'm, when you're done, I will call you. You don't have to worry about that. I will let you know. I said, but actually, I think you're not done. I think you just got started. And he hangs up the phone. True story. We bring in an industrial psychologist. He surrenders to the work. He credits that as the breakthrough moment when he started realizing, you know what? If this were to fall apart, whatever. Matt will be fine. I lost a few million for him. You know, my family will eat. I'll be okay. I'm an Irish bartender. I came here. I built this country. Eight months later, he sells that business for nine figures and it was a zero. 18 months later, and it was a zero yeah. at that moment. And he has enough yeah. money to feed his children for generations. And so I share that story and all these stories like it so people can pick a moment to identify like, oh, I have a disabled child. I felt like that. Or, you know what I mean? Even with me being a high school dropout, I was like, oh, I grew up in poverty. If Matt could do it. Maybe I could do it too. Would you say there's an element, maybe talking about you personally, but maybe you've seen this also of building habit muscle around this? Like you do it once and you go, wow, that worked out. Nobody died here. And the next time it's easier and the next time it's clearer. I mean, would you say that has happened to you? There's a hundred percent. I get frustrated yeah. that it's not more habituated. You know what yeah. I mean? I get mad at myself. Like, come on, you know this already, right? Like yeah. you'd be shocked if you were in my head as you're listening to this, you'd be shocked by the things that I revisit. But I've come to realize the awareness of it is a habit that I need to burn the boats and fully commit to extract maximum, right? And I have the fact patterns. But the reason why it doesn't always hold is because I'm always doing new hard things. And so yeah. the reason why I talk about imposter syndrome in the set of Shark Tank when I was arguably very successful is to show if you are putting yourself in truly new and uncomfortable situations, you are always feeling like an imposter because you are an imposter. You're an interloper for sure, another I word, but you're also <laughs> interloper and imposter feel kind of similar. And so the answer is it gets easier with muscle memory, but if it ever gets too easy, it means you're not putting yourself in new, yeah. really hard situations. Yeah. Like it's when really I went to Harvard. Harvard. Harvard Business School, I'd never taught a day in my life. One could argue 
well, your ego should have carried you or your sense of self-worth or self-esteem is like bullshit. Like I'm teaching at Harvard, like this is hard. And like, and so I had those emotions and the next time it got easier. And then by the third time I have to find a new intrinsic motivation system because I'm no longer full of anxiety, right? So it does get habituated, but at the same time, it should never get too habituated. Yeah, I mean, when I listen to you describe that, it's, you're really talking about growth, continued growth, yeah. aren't you? Right, right. There's, I always say there's a reason growing pains hurt, right? Like they're supposed to hurt. And sometimes people will say about my book, they're like, oh God, it sounds exhausting. Do you ever get to relax? And I said, the answer is no. And the reason why, talk to anyone who's been to the top of the mountain and they'll tell you there's not much to see there. I really believe that the joy of living is in the striving and it's not in the winning, which is yeah. a little bit contradictory because then you're like, well, then what are we fighting for? I think we're fighting for to touch the ceiling of our ambition, our potential. So that I think that brings us closer to God. I, when I see a person who's struggling to break through and I can make a slight trajectory change in their life and I watch them get closer to touching that ceiling of their potential, even though it's unknowable, I feel like I'm watching God and magic and the universe sort of play out. And I think we all have that feeling in ourselves. It's when we run the marathon, there's a reason we're depressed when the marathon's over. And we wish we were still training for it, right? Because we were pursuing the ceiling of our potential. It's interesting. I use this metaphor all the time. You know, a lot of people talking about striving to the climb Everest, you know, to get to the top and how dangerous it is and how hard it is. About three times more people die coming down than actually going up. And I think that's such a great metaphor, you know, for kind of that idea of climbing and then like, you know, going back down. Of course, now no one who listens to this is going to climb be like, damn, I'm going to die on the way back just when I thought I succeeded. Right? <laughs> exactly. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of lessons in that simple fact, by the way, in terms of we yeah. get to watch the guy. But yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so you did, as you mentioned, dozens, maybe more than dozens of interviews for this. Do you have, this is always a hard question when people do this, but do you have a couple of favorites or a couple you like to highlight? Oh, interviews I've done? Did, no, that you did for the book in particular. Oh, you mean interviews around the book that I really yeah, like? Yeah, yeah. With different leaders. Oh, in the book. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know what? There's a woman profiled in the book and she had created a marketing firm called Village. Right. And when I was working on the book, our interaction had sort of faded in the back of my memory and her name had kept coming up throughout my career. And then at one point I realized, wait, I know her. Actually, I had interviewed her before she had created this business because I tried to recruit her to join my business, a oh, new PR okay. eight years ago. And I reconnected with her. And it was one of these sliding door moments where she had a choice to join my new firm. Right. And instead, she went off and created the, this firm called The Village. And the reason why she did it is because she decided she needed to burn the boats and give it a shot or she never would. And she had a little baby daughter and she wanted mm. to try to create a firm that would be designed to enable her to raise her daughter the way she wanted to. So instead of joining my firm, she created her own and she only hired women. It was an all woman firm. And at the exact moment within three months that I sold the firm I built that she passed on, she sold her own and created massive generational wealth. And I tell the story of that. I tell the story in the book of a lot of female entrepreneurs because my whole life has been guided by strong women. So I just, you know, it happens to be a lot of incredible stories, but I'd say hers is one of my favorites. So tell us a little bit about the spinoff that I don't think it's out yet, Biz, Business Hunters. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for everyone listening, I've been on Shark Tank a couple of seasons. I love Shark Tank. And, you know, Shark Tank as a kid would always give me hope and like everybody else sitting watching that show. Yeah. But there's one part that is missing from Shark Tank. We all love it. But if you actually take a step back, how many people can really relate to the idea that you have an invention that is good enough that's going to put you in front of Mark Cuban and the rest? 
to try to get venture funding. It's actually a very alien concept that most people yeah. will never ever get close to. What we love about Shark Tank is the act of going for it, the sort of glory of you know getting that investment of winning. Like it just has everything's on display because every single person at some point or another has harbored either an idea or more yeah. likely autonomy and freedom that comes with being a business owner. We have a crappy yeah. boss, but like, I just want to quit. I just would love to it, right? So I realized, Mark Burnett realized that there isn't a show that speaks to that impulse. What if we created a show that was designed to take anyone in America who has a dream for like a restaurant or a drag cleaner or like a marina, you know, how do I buy that business? How do I get the financing for it? How do I value it? And so the show, takes usually a tandem, a husband, a wife, a couple or something. And we, we both break down the psychological issues that go into becoming a new business mm. owner because it has these like, oh, it's going to be great. I'm going to have a restaurant. I'm going to take weekends off. Like, no, you're not because your cash <laughs> door, your inventory is going to disappear. You will be working seven days a week. So a lot of it are those disabusing people of misperceptions about what it means to be a business owner. But the second part of the journey is let me present you with three different ideas. So, and then let's evaluate mm. them together. And then yeah. we give an opportunity for the entrepreneurs to actually work in those businesses before they buy them. Oh, nice. And then we negotiate. So very cool. I try to teach the audience because I get excited about like everything from like an ice cream truck, you know, to a hundred million dollar acquisition. Everything excites me that try to teach the audience about this area of the business sector that's kind of unexplored. So, yeah. you know, the business could cost, we have one business at $75,000. I mean, these are not, yeah. you know, businesses. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure you've got it all wired, but I want to come be a guest host on the thing because I've done, I've been doing this for 35 years and I've worked with 10,000 small businesses. I mean, right. these people you're talking about. I would love that. It's so fun. And then, you know, it's interesting about it as somebody who's worked on, you know, whatever, billion dollar deals. I know everything's the same, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. you know, how do I value, you know, EBITDA? What does EBITDA mean? Like, what, yeah, how do right. I balance cash outlay versus feeding my family growth versus everything? All, all the same issues. I always say, once you have two people working for you, you got the same kinds of problems that anybody else does, you know, so but true. I would love to have you on. And we finished shooting the show. And right now we're in the process of finding a home for it. But I assume by the time this airs or sometime thereafter, the network will be announced. Awesome. So you have in selling Burn the Boats, you have like a lot of authors just kind of buy extra books, get bonuses, but your bonuses are really fun. You've got some, you know, go to a Dolphins game, you know, come, I mean, just I I don't have, have the page nice up in front. Toys. I definitely have nice toys. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I will say though, that I'm a Chiefs fan and, you know, we're I'm looking sorry. to win the Super Bowl again. We gave you Tyreek to try to help you out a little bit, <laughs> but we're still going back to the Super Bowl. Yes. No, I have, a, I have a, it's called burntheboatsbook.com is the website. And, and I wanted to make it fun and come up with unique packages. I have a lot of interesting businesses in my portfolio. So right. one of them is doing a session with Gary Vaynerchuk, who's my partner. And just, if you check out the website, all sorts of cool and interesting things. Yeah. Very fun. Well, Matt, thanks so much for stopping by the duct tape marketing podcast. And hopefully we will run into you one of these days soon out there on the road. All right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, and one final thing before you go, you know how I talk about marketing strategy, strategy before tactics. Well, sometimes it can be hard to understand where you stand in that, what needs to be done with regard to creating a marketing strategy. So we created a free tool for you. It's called the Marketing Strategy Assessment. You can find it at marketingassessment.co, not .com, .co. Check out our free marketing assessment and learn where you are with your strategy today. That's just marketingassessment.co. I'd love to chat with you about the results that you get.